It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's the week ending Friday the 2nd of February. From Tortoise... Welcome to the news meeting. The DUP has agreed a deal to return to power sharing in Northern Ireland, subject to legislation. Zookeepers in Scottish Highlands are trying to find a monkey that's gone on the run after escaping from a wildlife park. European Union leaders have agreed a new financial package of aid to Ukraine. Now, a judge in the US state of Delaware has annulled a $56 billion pay package that was awarded to Elon Musk in 2018 by his electric car company Tesla. The puzzle over the missing monkey is over. His fondness for snaffling peanuts from bird feeders and indeed for Yorkshire pudding led to his recapture this morning, five days after going on the run. To try and figure out this week when the news is by any measure busy, what should actually lead, I'm joined by Tortoise's news editor, Jess Winch. Jess, hello, good to see you. Hello. Fair bit to get through. Our political editor, Kat Nealon, very itty-bitty political agenda this week, isn't it? Yes, but potentially significant. Oh, we'll get into that. And then we're also joined by David Miliband, who joins us from New York. David, how are you? Hello, James. I'm all the better for seeing you. Well, it's very, very good to have you. For those uh, listeners who've not heard from David Miliband before, he's now, of course, the chief executive of the International Rescue Committee, dealing with the world of impunity that he's done more than anyone I think to describe trying to make sense of the many many people who are displaced and the many many people who find themselves victims of violence in the world. Uh, David was previously the UK's foreign secretary and a whole load of other things as well so David thank you very much for joining the news meeting. Yeah happy to be part of it. So David part of the aim here is that you know all newsrooms have their own inevitable groupthink. We sit around talking about what matters convincing ourselves that we're right, both in our choice of stories and the hierarchy of stories. And when we set this up, one of our thoughts was, let's get people who aren't journalists to essentially step in and challenge that thinking, make us think about what stories are in the news, what stories are being neglected, what angles might be missed. So please do weigh in on Jess's story, on Kat's story. And I might have a few questions of my own. So let's go with long story short. Jess, why don't you go first? What story are you going to be pitching today? What's worth 55 billion? Dollars, euros? Dollars, US dollars. Kat, your story? Mine is hope in Northern Ireland, brackets, unfinished business. 
Right, okay. If you can successfully explain to me how Stormont works in the course of this news meeting so that an hour after it's finished, I still understand I'm going to feel, you know, enormously empowered by this whole process. David, what's your story? My story is about a young boy called Obada who was the first drowning in the channel. He's a young boy from Syria, the first drowning in 2024. And he drowned oh. last week and his his terrible story I think was was put together in a very good example of what should lead the news um, by the BBC, and I think it tells us a lot about um, how the news misses the real the real issues. So I look forward to talking about it. All right, but before we get to all of those things, can I just be sort of derail this whole process by just talking for a moment about Israel and Gaza, because. David, I suppose I find myself more and more distressed by it, distressed by what's happening, concerned by this sense that perhaps people are getting used to it, even as the the numbers of deaths, casualties, orphans, people who've lost parents, the situation in Gaza looks so worrying and, and the politics in Israel looks so bleak. I had a question for you really just with your kind of former foreign secretary's hat on, i.e. thinking about what diplomats can meaningfully do and what Western powers like the UK and the US can do, it feels as though something has shifted and that the West is saying there needs to be a Palestinian state, even while Netanyahu is saying he's not willing to countenance one. How much impact does diplomacy have? How much of a difference can a foreign secretary and a US Secretary of State make? Well, stop me if I take the next 40 minutes of the programme to answer. <laughs> no. Fair enough. I mean, I think you're right to, to go back to Gaza, and it's way worse than worrying. How much difference can diplomatic attention make? I think a lot. Um, not to, the, to substitute for domestic politics, but to uh, create a frame for domestic politics. And there are two pieces of evidence I would adduce to support the argument that diplomacy can make a difference. The first is to say to you, think before 7th of October, the neglect of the Palestinian issue for 10 years, really, um, I think is a part of the story that needs to be understood and is evidence what happens when diplomacy, when there's a diplomatic vacuum. And there was a real diplomatic vacuum um, on this issue, notwithstanding the efforts of normalization, notwithstanding the efforts between Saudi Arabia and Israel, notwithstanding the efforts around the Abraham Accords. Um, it was almost like the Palestinian issue didn't need to be addressed. Um, and I think that's dangerous. Second thing I'd just say to you is that when the Americans want to put the squeeze on you, they can put the squeeze on you. And I can say that as someone who uh, was in office in a country that was often allied with the US, but if they want something, they can make your life tough if they really want to get it. And so I think that, again, that doesn't substitute for domestic politics, um, but it's it's definitely a factor. Now, um, I think that there's domestic politics in Israel, which you mentioned. There's also domestic politics in Palestine, <laughs> which is in a way, dancing a, a terrible tango with um, domestic politics in Israel. But I would say that the the moment isn't this week. It's the the moment since October the 7th when 
I think it was Anthony Blinken and then President Biden said the status quo ante was not acceptable. But David, can you just follow through on the squeeze? Because it feels as though the expectations of the West, European capitals, certainly clear around a Palestinian state, the US position is critical in this, isn't it? And how close is the US, Biden, Blinken, Sullivan, how close are those people now to putting the squeeze on Netanyahu, do you think? Well, I think they are really, really worried about the the dynamic that is currently under play. Three parts of it that really worry them. Uh, one is what's happening in Gaza and the consequences for the US global reputation. Um, secondly, people talk about containing the spreading of the conflict, but it's spread. And as we record this, the administration is deciding how to respond to the killing of three American servicemen in Jordan, as you know, by an Iranian-backed militia. So that's a big part of it. And then thirdly, there's domestic politics in the US as well as domestic politics in Israel and Palestine. And um, I think it's, I often hear people say, oh, you know, people read an article which says there's 300,000 Muslim voters in Michigan. And they say, oh, yes, think about that. I think it's important to say there is a wider constituency that is very engaged with this issue than just Muslim Americans in Michigan. I think that this is also a crude way of putting it, but for a under 30 generation who were born around the time of the Oslo Accords in 93, it's a They've grown up with a different set of um, engagements with the Middle East. And uh, I think that that's a concern. So you've got those three factors, I think, pushing the administration to feel that they have to live up to what they said, which is that the status quo ante is not tenable. Uh, and David, I don't know whether you saw, but Bronwyn Maddox, who runs Chatham House now, gave a speech last week where she talked about... Um, double standards, the, the perception in many, many countries around the world that the West, the US and the UK in particular, operate double standards, not least when it comes to Israel-Palestine. I think, Jess, you were there, weren't you? No, the yep. speech. What do you think about that form of pressure, the, the extent to which the West itself, the US, begins to feel isolated because its moral authority gets sapped? There is undoubtedly very significant feeling um, in the so-called global south, that um, the West can talk a good game on human rights, climate change, international responsibility, but not deliver. Um, the the Palestine issue is part of that, but if I, with apologies for falling into the old politician's trick of referring you back to a speech I earlier gave, <laughs> I wrote a piece in um, Foreign Affairs magazine last um, April. Um, called The World Beyond Ukraine, saying Ukraine has united the West but divided the West from the rest. And it was precisely about this argument about double standards, that suddenly Ukraine was getting money, Ukrainian refugees were getting help. And my argument was people all across the global South are saying, hey, that's fine, but what about us? And that was my explanation for why, relatively speaking, so few countries have wanted to get engaged on the Ukraine issue outside Europe and North America. So that's the first thing to say, that you're absolutely right that there is that um, 
argument being made in in a good number of places, often with very strong and feelings and uh, and integrity. I think, secondly, it's also important to say, remember, that you've got uh, Russian and sometimes Chinese propagandists making this argument in a in itself a very hypocritical way. So let's not be too naive about this. But there's undoubtedly an a contest for global opinion. Global opinion matters. And being made to look like a hypocrite is a, is a difficult place to be in. And I think that the administration is sensitive to that. Let's come back to that, because I suspect we're going to, in different ways in the course of this conversation, touch on a fair few places in the world. Uh, I want to get into Jess's story. What can you get for $55 billion? So on Thursday morning, just before this started being recorded, the EU agreed a 50 billion euro package, which is 54 billion US dollars, to fund a four-year aid package for Ukraine. And this was something that looked like it might not happen right up until the moment that EU leaders walked into the meeting room in Brussels because Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, had been very open for a very long time, uh, really since the full-scale invasion, about his uncertainty about funding Ukraine in this way. But within an hour of the meeting starting, Charles Michel put out on social media that uh, they had agreed the funding, all members agreed, and that this locks in steadfast, long-term, predictable funding for Ukraine. And that really touches on why this matters so much. Ukraine really needs this money at the moment. The US aid that President Biden is urgently seeking, which is about 60 billion US dollars, is being held up in Congress. They're making not very much progress on the battlefield at the moment. And this money will cover both the immediate need to keep basic services running and let Ukraine plan ahead a little bit more. Uh, What Orban has said he wanted was the ability to veto the money each year. What he ended up getting is an agreement that every year there would be a review of how the money was being spent. So this is an incredibly important moment for Ukraine. And it's also incredibly important for the EU because if this hadn't gone through, the rupture that would have formed between Hungary and the rest of the bloc would have been I don't say insurmountable but it would have I mean it's it's been bad for a while but this could have been it and there were reports in the Financial Times earlier this week that the EU was considering undermining the Hungarian economy as a very big sort of stick incentive to try and force Orban to get on side so that's just 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 on that Jess just explain what happened because I think that FT at the start of the week, was reporting they were going to bully Orban into accepting. And then by Thursday, they were, I'm sure this is not the right diplomatic phrase, but seemed to be bribing him <laughs> into accepting. What happened? The It's not quite clear what he ended up getting. Um, it doesn't look as though he got a lot more financial incentives, though. What he, what he did get is an agreement that, for example, um, all EU countries would be treated equitably when it comes to deciding whether or not to withhold funds. And that, of course, relates to the 20 billion euros which are currently being withheld or frozen from going to Hungary because of long-standing part, you know, disagreements over rule of law. Um, so it looks as though that piece in the FT was perhaps a last-ditch effort to really hammer home how serious the EU was about pushing this deal over the line this morning. And as I said, I think it's a huge story this week because of how much it matters to Ukraine, which has also slipped, which has slipped out of the news um, over the past six months and needs more attention. But 
But the reason I'm framing it around this question of what's worth $55 billion is because the other story that I was looking at this week was the um, proposed pay package for Elon Musk, um, which was agreed with Tesla's board in 2018. Now, I've committed a horrible rounding error here because this was up to a maximum amount of 55.8 billion US dollars. So more than the package that has been agreed today to go to Ukraine to fund Ukraine over the next four years. But hold, the, hold on, hold on, hold on. Elon Musk's pay package yes. is $55.8 billion. A maximum that he could have, that it was worth, yes. This was back in, this was agreed with Tesla's board in, in uh, 2018. And just reading that, it, it made me start thinking about what's, what's money worth? What do we value? And the and then, of course, the tying in with the amount agreed for Ukraine today kind of, I think, just makes that point quite well. But 56 billion is Japan's entire defense budget for this year. 56 billion is the Democratic Republic of Congo's GDP. The UK's entire school funding for the 2022-2023 year is $54 billion, so less. So all the money that went to the UK schools in 2022-2023 is less than Elon Musk was offered as a pay package in 2018. David, can I just ask you a question, which is going to sound like I'm plugging donations to the International Rescue Committee, which I am. Um, I read in Mark Sussman, you know, this is the CEO of the Gates Foundation. Mark Sussman writes this sort of... Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation letter every year. And the one he wrote this week said that there are 2,640 billionaires in the world. Are billionaires, as a rule, good donors? Some are and some aren't, I think is the simple (laughs) truth about that. I I do want to just call out the judge in the Delaware case who didn't just um, make this rather interesting and bold decision. And I would link it back to what she actually said was there was impunity in the way this was done. Sorry to sound yes. like a, um, a a sort of stuck record, but she says there wasn't fair process because his brother was on the board. He controls the board. He, he and she has, but but she also has a, a delicious writing style. And I, know. I went and looked she at what she said. Star Trek, she called which I absolutely it. love. <laughs> she said this decision will boldly go where no judgment has gone before. Well, no, she said. I mean. She, she was even even cleverer than that. She called the pay negotiation or discussion a "quote unquote" self-driving process, which I think <laughs> is absolutely priceless in the context of the Tesla um, uh, of Tesla. I tell you what, I don't get. He owns twenty-two percent of Tesla. Yes. So if he's he's so he's vested in the success of Tesla from the beginning, and. <laughs> It's a it's it's an inordinate sum of money, obviously. I mean, as for the billionaires, um, some of them are very planful and very um, thoughtful about the way they give out money. Some of them think that because they're billionaires, they know everything about everything and can do everyone's jobs, and so that's difficult. And David, to drag you into a little bit of kind of UK politics, there's a debate now, isn't there, around wealth. There's a debate about whether or not you incentivize a la the United States charitable giving or you say, look, however much very rich people give, it's it's not enough as a percentage of their wealth proportionate to the needs of public services. And we need to move to some form of higher wealth taxation. What do you think? I think there is a strong case for that. Um, 
but I don't think it's about. I think it's different from the philanthropy issue. I think the set of philan- the philanthropy issues, I think, are, are different. Really, I, I don't understand how. No, you what, I'm, what I'm what I what I'm saying is, when you get into the argument about quote unquote the good billionaire, what happens is you'll hear people say, look, if you see the contributions that good billionaires have given over decades. The argument they make is keep taxes low, enable enterprising people to make money and society benefits. And the argument on the other side is, no, you need to, you're going to need, particularly in this day and age when the concentration of wealth is so high, to move to a different form of taxation for the super rich. I mean, there's very little evidence that tax rates are what drive um, charitable giving. What's more arguable is the incentives for charitable giving are increased by tax write-offs which do exist in america it's a slightly different it's a slightly different uh, but what point. about the, what about the tax point on the super rich what do you how do you now think about that i think that the growth of um the super rich if you, if you want to use that expression it has got to be part of the argument for progressive taxation you can't have progressive taxation limited to income because um, income is only, as you see from this Elon Musk issue, is only part of the uh, story. I think that tax bases are under threat all around the world. I mean, it's interesting, Musk has announced today that he's moving from Delaware to Texas because he thinks he's going to get a better tax um, deal. Uh, deal. Now, Delaware is actually the center of uh, American corporate registration. And one of the reasons for that is the strength of the rule of law. Um, now, if if it, if you then end up in a competition where people feel they're going to get a different a different legal shake in different places, and you start getting undercutting for that, I think that's quite. But that has very big consequences for a country that is meant to be a, a country of laws and on which, in the end, property rights depend. All right. Before before I come to Northern Ireland, there's one other element of Jess's story that I just want to get David's take on. David, I think I read somewhere that European aid to Ukraine now has just eclipsed US aid to Ukraine. And obviously, there's a lot of concern in Europe that a Trump presidency would mean, in effect, the end of financial military aid to Ukraine. Do you think in this election year, given US domestic politics, that Europeans need to recognize the fact that this is becoming Europe's war, that the US in one way or another is stepping back from Ukraine? Well, yes, they do. And there are two parts of this. One, you're right. The, if you tally up all the funding, economic, social and military, that's gone to support Ukraine, Europe is the majority. I think it has been for some time, actually. Um, but on the military side, US kit, ammo, etc., is the preponderant supporter of the Ukrainian effort. And the problem you've got, even with the Biden presidency, which has done a, a really serious job at rallying support, coordinating efforts to support Ukraine, and being a major military supporter, is that you've got this gridlocking Congress where the Republican-controlled House won't agree to the support for Ukraine, even when it's tied up with Israel support and with a border package. And so I, my understanding is that in three or four months, you're going to feel those shortages in the battlefield in Ukraine, so on the military side. And so even before November and the election, there is a clear and present danger to the 
effectiveness of the Ukrainian effort. That's especially true as we come out of winter. So I think that that very much is Europe's problem in respect of the the election. I think it's, it behooves us to to take seriously and literally what President Trump has said um, about quote unquote ending the war on day one. Um, and the way you end the war on day one is um, by saying that you're not going to support any further attacks. You're going to freeze the lines where they are. You're going to give the Russians what they've got. And in that process, I think the, the invasion would be claimed as a victory um, by the Kremlin. So I think that the, the implications for Europe are very serious, even before you get to questions of what's the future of NATO if there is a Trump presidency. All right. Good grief. Cat. Um, Let's go to Northern Ireland. What was your long story short? How do you frame it? Hope in Northern Ireland, brackets, unfinished business. As we record this, MPs are debating uh, some legislation which will, assuming it is passed and there's no reason to think it won't, it has cross-party support, uh, will help, uh, is is a, a deal that will help to restore the power sharing agreement in Northern Ireland almost two years after it was uh, sort of uh, broken. Um, so the deal is uh, sort of largely kept in this. It's an 80-page command paper called Safeguarding the Union, which I will come back to that title in a minute. Um, it's a command paper. It's a command paper, Never yes. even heard such thing exist. It sounds great. It's basically the Windsor framework with a few tweaks. Um, and it is the source of much uh, tension. The DUP held, uh, well, has been obviously having a series of meetings. The final one ended at one o'clock in the morning earlier this week. Uh, they have agreed to back it uh, with some provisions. And the reason why I say unfinished business is because I was just watching Jeffrey Donaldson, the DUP's leader in Westminster, um, speaking in the debate earlier, and he did describe it as unfinished business. So I think it's safe to say that there are lots of people who are not terribly happy with this. You know, there are some sort of ardent Brexiteer Conservative MPs who seem pretty unhappy. There are some DUP members very unhappy. All right, can I can I just can I admit that we used to have a colleague here, brilliant journalist Chris Cook, who actually went to the FT, we were together at the BBC, and he would always give me a hard time saying, you're just the kind of journalist who spends more time getting excited about the politics of suburban Wisconsin than you do about what happens in the United Kingdom itself, particularly uh, Northern Ireland. And he's right. I just, I, I always struggle to understand exactly what's going on. And in this story, yeah. I have to confess, because I'm a Londoner, and that that's just a fact. In this story, the thing I don't understand is... Power sharing basically broke down, has broken down for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So you'd have thought that something really substantial was at stake. But as I understand it, the DUP, the unionists, mm. have essentially held out until they got a deal that proved to them that, that Westminster, that London, that the UK was committed to the union. Mm. And that some of the new terms around trade between the British Isles and Northern Ireland, right, that some of those checks, those checks across the Irish Sea, were loosened. Is that all this has been about? Um, I think that is the sort of nub of the technical changes. But I think with so much when it comes to Northern Ireland, it's about the language and the framing of it. 
Um, and so, yes, you're right. It is um, ostensibly about unfettered access. But for the for the DUP and other unionists, it's about being reassured that um, Northern Ireland is part of Britain, is part of the UK, will always remain that. It's about the, the sort of um, constitutional grounding of Northern Ireland versus the access to the market. So Robert Buckland, who is the chair of the Northern Ireland Committee and a former cabinet minister, had quite an interesting explanation. He said, it is the difference between access to the EU single market, access, and the North and Northern Ireland's constitutional position within the UK. And they are that it's 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 sort of recognizing that you can continue to have access. That's a that's a trading issue, that's a logistics issue, but it does nothing to undermine Northern Ireland's position within the UK. But Karen, I just want to get my I was trying to get myself in the shoes of a unionist. Is the concern that if you have checks across the Irish Sea, in effect, the island of Ireland becomes part of the European Union market and gradually over time, its economics gets further and further apart from the economics of Scotland, Wales and England. And so it's a fear of drift that lands you in a united Ireland. Yes. I mean, it's, it's more immediate than that. Um, there has been what I think my former colleagues at The Telegraph referred to as the sausage wars because there was this issue around um, some form, some kinds of meat not being able to be um, transported. So if you were in, in Northern Ireland, you couldn't buy sausages that came from GB. Um, that was resolved a while ago, I think, but but there are still some residual issues. And, you know, one of the questions that was being put to the Secretary of State today is about VAT, um, you know, so there's there's so differentials. It's in people's there. lived lives. There are there are distinctions there, but I think I think um from it is, as I say, eighty pages. I haven't read it cover to cover yet. It's a car it's a command I know, paper. I know, yes. Cat, you're commanded. <laughs> so look, I think two things can be true at the same time. One is that the Good Friday Agreement promised that citizens of Northern Ireland could be British or Irish or both, which is a beautiful idea, really. It's a really powerful, I think, 21st century notion of, of, of citizenship. And I think it's important that we respect both the spirit and the mechanics of what it means to be British if you're a citizen of Northern Ireland. That, that, that's true. The second thing that's also true, though, is that Brexit is the originating um, dynamite in that careful settlement. And more than that, the deceptions at the heart of the quote-unquote get Brexit done election when Boris Johnson promised, if anyone gives you any forms to fill in, just send them to me at Downing Street, don't worry anything about it. That's blowing up in the face of successive governments since then. That's also true. And you said, is there a fear that somehow the island of Ireland will be part of the single market? It is. That's the case today. That's the jerry-rigged um, compromise that has had to be put together, that it is part of the single market. Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, they're both part of the single market. Um, all right, we, I suspect we're going to come back to this, Kat. Sorry, you wanted to weigh in. My point was more 
actually around the sort of future of Northern Ireland um, in terms of both its economy. This now kind of gives it the opportunity to, as we have discussed, sort of benefit from um, uh, access to the single market as well as access to the UK internal market. There's a lot of talk about, therefore, it becoming the, the most pot- potentially the most prosperous part of the UK. I have to say that seems unlikely from, from this point because it is currently the poorest part of the UK. But um, there is, you know, talk of investment zones and, and, and lots of sort of money going into Northern Ireland. As part of the, this deal, they have agreed to unlock £3.3 billion, which will go to public services. So people that work in the public sector will be able to get a pay rise instead of striking, which has been one of these threats. And there's a long list of things that obviously haven't been able to be dealt with over the last two years. Um, uh, health service is another is another key thing. But yes, I, I think f- for me, this, um, this, this kind of issue around the future of Northern Ireland, um, does it become part of a united Ireland? Sinn Féin already making noises about that being quote, within touching distance, which has therefore sort of obviously had the the kind of effects of uh, upsetting the unionists. And there is going to be, I think, a lot more discussion now about the future of Northern Ireland, albeit, uh, you know, I think overstated by Sinn Féin, its immediacy. Let's take a beat and then come back to David's story. The, the one that you suggested right at the beginning, David, the case of the drowning in the channel. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So, David, this is a terrible story. It's one person. Why do you choose it as something that should be leading the news or at least at the forefront of our minds? Well, you asked everyone else to make the long story short, so I was quickly scribbling here, and I scribbled down death in the sea, colon, the price of illusions. So the death in the sea is the death of Abado Rabo, who was a 14-year-old boy from Dara, which is the town in southwestern Syria that 
um, really originated the civil war with protests in 2011. And the price of illusions is illusions on uh, his part and his parents' part about getting to um, getting to Europe and getting to the UK, but also illusions on the part of, I'm afraid, British policymakers about the incentives that are at play in managing migration from war zones. Um, Abado's brother is already in the UK. He he was older. Um, he was uh, threatened by a local death squad and was threatened with conscription into Assad's army. That's why he fled and he was given permission to stay in the UK and he is in the UK. Um, there's then a complex series of um, relationships that the BBC story has done a really good job of putting together about um, Abado, why he left. He was a 14-year-old. He was good at school. He played soccer, but his his parents were ill. There are issues to do with whether or not they were trying to get out. I mean, his, his trip, by the way, um, took him um, to Libya, to Benghazi, to Tripoli, then took him um, out uh, further into the sea, then got to... Um, he got to Italy. Or he got to Lampedusa, the island of Italy. He then got brought in um, to um, the UK. Three different smuggler networks funded by his uncle in Dubai, who were trying to support him. This kid couldn't swim, and his ultimate trip was going to be across the channel from Boulogne to um, to the UK. He he didn't make it. This is, the, uh, I mean, there are many sick parts of the story, but. He was ten meters off the shore when he drowned. He never no. even got. He never got on the boat. So no. and he couldn't. He, he never could swim. And so there was this fundamental illusion about he, how he was ever going to get to join his his brother, but also the illusion that for people who are willing to risk their lives, that somehow you can disincentivize them by saying, if you do make it, we're going to send you to Rwanda, and you and if. You get your case dealt with there, and you are agreed to be a refugee. You'll never be allowed to stay. It, it, it doesn't add up. And one of the most cruel parts of this at the beginning is that um, one of the quotes in the story says, "Look, what were we meant to do? What was our legal route to try to to come?" There were two thousand refugees resettled through the UN route into the UK. Last year, that's three per parliamentary constituency. Refugee resettlement is the organized, planned dispersal of refugees from one country to another, facilitated by the UN, but with each country um, making its own arrangements. So that's not really an option. Um, Hold on, when you say three that, per parliamentary, you mean three people? Yes. The, the refugee resettlement. I mean, in America, the figure last year was, um, I mean, the historic average is about 90,000. So refugee resettlement, which is one of the planned routes is, is is only marginally available. Then for everyone else, under the new legislation, you've got to be in the UK to claim claim asylum. And if you make it here, you get you get called illegal. So that's not really a route. And there was actually a very good exchange. Maybe Kat remembers. I, I don't I'm not sure if it was Robert Buckland. I don't think so. It was another Tory MB had an exchange in the Home Affairs Select Committee with them, Su, with Suella Braverman last year. Tim Loughton. He, he He said, look, hang on. Tell me what I'm meant to do if I... I think he used the case of an Iranian girl, woman, um, protesting against the regime who was being targeted. He said, How, what am I meant to do? And we all agree that she's got real 
fear of persecution. That's the basic reason for being a refugee. And there was no answer to the question, what are you meant to do? If you're from Hong Kong, well, there is an option for you. If you're from Ukraine, there is an option for you. For a small number of Afghans who worked for British services, there was an option. But for the Iranian in the Tim Loughton case, and for this poor kid, Obado, um, there's no, there's no quote-unquote legal option. And David, what do you say to people who blame politicians for this, i.e. in the UK, I don't know whether you saw this week, the um, Office for National Statistics moved its estimate of when the population will reach 70 million. So the forecast had been mid-2030s, it's now mid-2020s. And the reason for that is legal immigration, right? So 700 plus thousand last year, 600 plus thousand this year. I think the average now forecast is 300 plus thousand, right? So there's this brutal politics and uh, treatment, frankly, of people fleeing persecution or seeking asylum, or you might say economic migrants coming illegally. But those numbers are in the thousands, tens of thousands. The legal migration is the hundreds of thousands. And and the point I'm trying to make to you is there are some people who say, yes, but the problem is there's no politician standing up making the case for immigration, explaining how migration works. And as a result, everyone gets lumped in together and asylum seekers are demonized because the structural migration problem is so big and no one really explains the distinction. But I certainly think it's true that you cannot sort out your asylum system if you haven't sorted out your immigration system. I mean, I see that very clearly in the US. There are 11 million undocumented people in the US who are immigrants, and there hasn't been a um, an immigration act since 1986. I mean, in the UK, we probably have too many immigration acts that are done in haste. In the US, they've been unable to uh, legislate for this since the um, since the mid-1980s. And in that context, the question of X thousand Syrians get th- was thrown in by Donald Trump into the question of the 11 million. And so you, you can't sort out one uh, without the other. Secondly, I think it's important to, to emphasize that there are no legal, international legal requirements for countries to take immigrants. Countries like Japan take very few immigrants, but they're still bound by international refugee and asylum conventions. The UK has sort of, by default, taken immigration choices by pretending it's addressing the asylum issue. And that does no one um, any good. I think there's cross-party support for the um, uh, 300,000 Hong Kongers who've been given British passports. That's a good thing. Um, it's actually a potentially very, you know, very educated, um, very committed um, part of the workforce. But it's important to be public about that. It's also the case that a lot of the Europeans who were coming to the UK when we were in the EU have been replaced by non-Europeans who actually don't have the same education levels uh, as they are. And so my, my point always is, look, the choice in the immigration debate and the asylum debate if you like, call it the migration debate, is not will people try to come, should they be allowed, versus whether or not they can be stopped from coming. The real choice is, do people come in a planned, organized, legal, and humane way, or do they try to come in an illegal, unplanned, disorganized way? And 
our approach, I run an NGO, which is all about people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster. We're mainly about humanitarian aid, but we also help refugees and asylum seekers. My point is always, we stand for a system that is orderly and humane. And the argument that cruelty leads to order is actually fundamentally wrong. It's yeah. not cruelty versus humanity. It's, it's order versus disorder. And humanity is part of an orderly system. We are going to try and make sense of the many competing stories, stories competing for our attention, I should say. Jess, I'm going to ask you first. The way this works, David, is you're not allowed to suggest that your story should lead the news because you've already done that. So of the others, Jess, do us some musing. Some musing, I should say. Tell us what you think of both David's story, Kat's story. How would you put them in order? So Kat's story I like because I think in the mix that we've got here this afternoon, this is a positive step forward. It might be small steps on for the Windsor Agreement agreed last year, but it has broken a two-year deadlock. It will restore power sharing. It will unlock 3.3 billion in aid. It is it is moving in forward in a head. It is moving forward in a way I think is worth marking and is important and will continue to lead the news going uh, going forward. I'm going to lead with David's story, not so much around the issue of UK migration, although I feel that's also really important. But we have we've discussed that quite a lot on this program. But honestly, just for the sense of um, as we come up to the one year anniversary of the February 6th earthquake in Turkey and northern Syria, which has slipped off the radar, I think we should be paying more attention to Syria. I think we should be paying more attention to other conflicts in the world, such as that in Sudan, which has now displaced around 10 million people, which I think if I've got this right, um, the International Organization for Migration said that one in every eight internally displaced persons in the world is in Sudan. And we're just not paying enough attention to these stories. So for that reason, Syria leads for me. Kat, what story do you lead with? Um, I agree with Jess that Syria, David's pitch, leads. But I disagree with her angle. I think that the story of the individual is the way into this because of two reasons. One is that when I was uh, looking into this story, and I have to admit that I wasn't aware of it until I knew that David was pitching it. It instantly reminded me of the case in 2015 of that young toddler, Alan Kurdi, that was found washed up on the shore. And that had an instant, I can still feel it giving me chills now, not just because we're in a cold room, um, giving me chills because it had an instant connection. Um, everyone whether they're a parent or a, a friend or someone who has a child will feel physically pained at the thought of a child dying. And um, and so for that reason, I would stick with the individual human element to it. And also because I don't know if you remember, James, but when we were doing predictions for 2024, one of my predictions was that within the, all of the context of the sort of hostile environment towards uh, refugees and immigrants that has been created in the UK, one of my predictions was that there would be some kind of moment like this and I don't know this is necessarily the moment but I think that this is perhaps a foretelling of one that shocks people and realizes how inhumane the system has become and will do something in our collective psyche to force a change. Well, here's hoping. David well, two women after my own heart, really, in putting the, I mean, really, I, I, but I, we're just after terribly, your vote. Terribly, <laughs> terribly kind of them. Um, I mean, 
just pick up one, two things that they each of um, Jess and Kat said. One is that this point that the Syria issue has not gone away, it's not resolved, is a really powerful point. It feels like yesterday's story, but actually the battle is unresolved. Um, there are five million Syrians living outside government control inside the country and six or seven million Syrians outside the country. And there were only 20 million Syrians at the beginning of the civil war. So uh, the argument that if you don't manage and resolve these problems, they come and bite you is, is, is I think, um, very powerful. Second point, the Sudan um, question. Thank you for raising that, Jess. 25 million people have been um, uh, thrown into humanitarian need. Uh, the people who know this much better than I say that what's happening in Darfur has all the beginnings of a rerun of 2003-4-5 of just unbelievable massacres uh, of um, populations in the southwest of the country. And I was just trying to Google to get the statistic, but the population of Khartoum last April was 8 million. And I think it's halved, or it's down to a quarter of the level. The depopulation of Khartoum um, is just sort of massive exodus. I don't think I can't think of a historic parallel for that. And that has zero coverage. I mean, I know this because it, uh, Khartoum was the um, uh, Sudan came out top on the IRC's emergency watch list that we published in uh, December, which is our annual assessment of uh, humanitarian need in the year ahead. It came up above Gaza, actually. And um, it, it, there's no coverage of Sudan. Having said all this, um, actually, I think that the the, the, what you said about Northern Ireland, the, James, that you're a Londoner, but you don't understand it. Northern Ireland is part of the UK. And the interest of all of us as British citizens in a part of the UK having government, remember, that's what this is about, is a big issue. Even we talked about ungoverned space around the world. Government existing in the, in, in the north of our, in, in Northern Ireland is, I think, a really important story, which... If we as British citizens don't feel informed or engaged with, and somehow we dismiss that as a foreign policy story, I think that's really dangerous. Remember, it's also worth pointing out 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago now, issues of governance in Ireland were at the centre of the creation of the Irish state and the creation of six counties in the north the, and of Northern Ireland. And so uh, not just out of the fact that I'm not allowed to vote for my own story, I think that um, that is a deservedly big story. Actually, when I um, was um, doing some uh, Googling yesterday about the, about the story, it didn't seem to be getting as much coverage as I expected. It was almost being treated like, oh, my God, this is too complicated for any for, 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 for quote-unquote mainland papers. And that's the wrong way of thinking about it, I think. All right, David, thank you. I'm going to give you my quick run of at least, as editor, the running order I'd go with. Um, but you all managed to make me feel guilty now in one way or another that I've got it wrong, which inevitably I have. Um, I think I think you're completely right. You've got to run the DUP story. You've got to run it with a good piece of analysis that gives all of that historic context. We were talking uh, this morning, David, in the newsroom about the idea of the history of now, that every news story should come with a timeline. Uh, and this DUP one and the return to government at Stormont is exactly one of those cases. That said, Kat, I'd run that third. I'd run David, your story second. Um, I have to say, I think death at sea, the price of illusions 
is is a, a brilliant way of framing it because it is both that individual story that Kat mentioned, but a story about a set of policy failures that have a very heavy price. I do worry that the price of illusions is a tagline that you could put on a whole load of stories, uh, and it might be one of those multi-use uh, strap lines uh, for the future. Um, but I'm going to go with Jess's buy one, get one free, uh, $55 billion story. And the reason is I do think that... Uh, the problems in bringing sufficient aid to Ukraine, the way you put it, David, particularly on military hardware is something we need to focus on and Europe needs to prepare for the increasing ask that's coming its way from Ukraine. Um, I have to confess the story that I'm most intrigued by, the one that you're going to want to talk about, the one that you want to get into the details of who said what and how did this possibly happen, is a $55.8 billion pay settlement for one individual. As you say, an individual who's already got a quarter of a, you know, enormously valuable company. So the $55 billion, both Elon Musk and funding to Ukraine, is the story I'd lead with. With that, big thank you to David Miliband, the chief executive of the International Rescue Committee. Uh, thank you, David, for joining us. I know life is particularly busy for you at the moment, so really appreciate you making the time. Thanks, James. Kat and Jess, thank you both. Um, for bringing your stories and uh, being here. And as you say, Kat, in this freezing cold podcast studio. <laughs> We're bringing the weather inside. <laughs> inside. If listening to all of this, you think that there was a story that we missed, then you can email us on newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. And before you say, well, you missed something enormously important, you missed the argument on Capitol Hill about the way in which social media has impacted the lives of so many people, particularly young people. We're going to leave you with a clip because here's Mark Zuckerberg, who runs Instagram and Facebook, now under the umbrella Meta, up against the Republican Senator Josh Hawley. They were talking at a congressional hearing about protections for children online, and the committee had given the bosses of TikTok, of X, of Snap and Discord a hard time. But there was a moment. It was the moment that Senator Hawley asked the founder of Meta to apologise to the family sat behind him, who say that their children have been so harmed by social media. He stood up and turned around to address them, and which is why I should say it's quite hard to hear exactly what he says at points. But just take a listen. That's Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. There's families of victims here today. Have you apologised to the victims? Would you like to do so now? Well, they're here. You're on national television. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? And this is why we invested so much and are going to continue doing industry big efforts to, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. Tortoise. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.